0: Article 2. Dispensational versus Covenantal Theology by Pastor Reed Benson Most who study the Bible are willing to acknowledge certain basics of interpretation, such as the inerrancy of the text and the importance of historic context. But beyond these precepts, or perhaps undergirding them in an abstract way, the student of Scripture, must establish another aspect of biblical interpretation. The question could be posed like this. What is the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? Two approaches have been developed. The older one sees these two portions of sacred writ as deeply integrated. The Old Testament is the foundation of theology, while the New Testament is the culmination of salvation history. Known in recent centuries as Covenantal Theology or Reformed Tradition, this understanding of the two Testaments asserts that both are necessary, non-contradictory, complementary, and are progressive in their revelations to man, with no discontinuity, as a reader proceeds from one to the other. Covenantal theologians argue that trying to understand the New Testament without extensive knowledge of Old Testament precepts will invariably lead to false assumptions and error. A newer approach became popular in the 1800s and looks at the Old and New Testaments as two entirely separate ways that God relates to man. Known today as dispensationalism, this theological paradigm considers the New Testament as a fresh start with God that maintains little connectivity to the Old Testament. According to many dispensational thinkers, a deep, conceptual division between the two portions of the Bible exists, and recognizing this is justified and appropriate. Indeed, some adherents to this opinion consider the Old Testament unworthy of reading or studying, resulting in congregations that are New Testament only. A Synopsis of Dispensational Theology The word dispensation is used in Scripture, Four times it appears in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17, Ephesians 1, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 2, and again in Colossians 1, verse 25. But it merely means administration or stewardship. The word dispensation does not carry any internal theology. Not all dispensationalists are exactly alike. One popular framework divides all of biblical history, not just into two large chunks, but seven. This view asserts that there were seven ages, innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and kingdom. But these seven are rarely expounded upon as distinct theological epochs in terms of how man is able to obtain eternal life. In that respect... Dispensationalists see only two. These are a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, also known as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Dispensationalists generally propose that all Old Covenant people were saved as a reward for their obedience, their works, their good conformance to the laws of the Old Testament. Thus, Moses, Deborah, David, Jeremiah, Hezekiah, and other heroes of the Old Testament are presumed to have inherited their eternal station in the presence of God because they were obedient individuals whose lives were filled with dutifulness towards Jehovah based on the standard of the Mosaic Law. But dispensationalists assert God eventually decided that a new approach was needed, primarily because the ancient Israelite nation could not maintain their obligations. As a group, they were simply unfaithful to God. Thus... God decided that he would forge a new pathway for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, eternal life has nothing to do with obedience to a set of laws, rules, or standards. Rather, by faith, any individual is saved, and indeed any person on planet Earth is now eligible for salvation. That is something new, for dispensationalists are content to concede that under the old plan, Salvation was only possible if one were an Israelite. But now, anyone from any race of humankind can become a spiritual Israelite if they simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Furthermore, they insist obedience to the Mosaic Law is not only unnecessary, but a bad idea. Thus, most dispensational thinkers strongly infer that there are two paths of salvation— God's old plan, and the new one. Interestingly, some see that this presents a perceived inconsistency, so they tweak their theology a bit and claim that two different paths are both still functioning. Salvation by works is the path for genetic Israelites to please God and obtain eternal life, then and now, while salvation by faith is how genetic non-Israelites can also go to heaven. In other words, God did not completely discard the old plan. Rather, he established a new plan that runs parallel to the old. While some might insist that this short summary of dispensational concept does not do it justice, in truth, it's not very much off the mark. The central feature of this theological framework is the discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. To a proponent of this type of thinking, the New Testament really is new, different, dissimilar, unrelated, and disconnected from the Old. There is no important continuity, and what matters in the Old Testament may be of interest, but holds no imperatives over any person in the modern era. The rules have changed, and God has new and different expectations. Worrisome Implications of Dispensationalism What are the trouble spots with this concept? First, dispensationalism suggests that God changed his mind, a frightening thought. If God really changes his mind, was God mistaken the first time? Did he fail to foresee the weakness of his first plan? Was the Old Covenant fundamentally flawed? If so, what was this fatal flaw? And what does this weakness say about God, the originator of the Old Covenant? Second, A dispensational view suggests that God is not sovereign. It implies that he does not know where human history is going, or what might happen next. Apparently, God had to react to the affairs unfolding on earth in the same manner that you and I must react to the choices other people make. Third, if dispensationalism is correct, does this not imply a whole new theology, really a different religion altogether? What is this new religion? Christianity? Does this mean Christians worship a different God from Old Testament saints? Can we really derive anything that we might need for our lives from the New Testament? And if the new teachings have displaced some of the doctrines of the Old Testament, how do we know which ones? Are all Old Testament ideas flawed? If some are still valid and others are not, how do we know which ones to retain? Did Jesus or St. Paul provide a list of Old Testament ideas to reject, or perhaps a list to keep? A Synopsis of Covenantal Theology The first precept of covenantal theology is that God is completely sovereign. That means He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and without any limitation beyond that which He places upon Himself. His presence is from eternity— Without beginning. Being uncreated, God is not like man, and we are incapable of fully perceiving what God is like, let alone understanding his thoughts. In this respect, God is inscrutable. Thus... Man is incapable of making any judgments about why God chose to make the world the way he did or why God allows things to happen that we see as unfair, unjust, unkind, or cruel. Second, being perfect in all ways, God is unchanging. His words, actions, and purposes are without flaw. The unchanging nature of a perfect, divine being strongly implies that he will relate to man in a manner that is consistent, characterized by constancy rather than change. Third, God relates to man through arrangements, the Bible calls covenants. While the covenants differ, the underlying principles of the covenants remain consistent and complementary. Rather than viewing a newer covenant as a break from the past, we should view the covenants as a progressive Revelation that guides man toward the destiny that God has designed. The new covenant might be better, not because the old covenant was fundamentally flawed, but because God saw that it was time for the next stage in salvation history. Like gift-wrapped boxes that nestle one inside the other, the closer the recipient gets to the center, the more valued is the new box, and the more excited the person opening them becomes. The larger outside box has nothing wrong with it. Rather, the smaller new one nestling inside is a step closer to the final, much-anticipated gift. Relating to salvation and eternal life, covenant theology asserts that all people throughout history are saved by faith in Christ alone. Like us, Old Testament heroes such as Abraham, Moses, David, Deborah, and Jeremiah, were saved by faith alone, not because they obeyed the law of Moses. They looked forward in time toward a perfect sacrifice for sin that they, by faith, believed that God would provide. We look backward in time to that same sacrifice, Christ Jesus upon the cross at Calvary. False Teachings That Dispensationalism Has Encouraged A great many dispensationalists are sincere in their love for God and Scripture. As the following false doctrines are outlined below, do not construe that those who advocate them are three-headed monsters. They are not greater sinners than anyone else. Yet, they are mistaken, and these errors are potentially serious enough to cause distress in the body of Christ, and thus might be called heresies. Two Pathways to Salvation The most serious doctrinal error is the dispensational penchant to imply there is more than one pathway of salvation. Jesus stated in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Faith in Christ alone is the only way to obtain eternal life. This is a cornerstone doctrine, one that Martin Luther rediscovered after much neglect on the part of the Roman Catholic Church. One of the great truths of the Protestant Reformation is articulated in 3 different New Testament passages: Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 38. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. All three of these, however, are a quotation from the Old Testament, and are introducing no new doctrine. From Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The idea that all people of all human history are saved by faith rather than works is confirmed when we consider one of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham. Consider what Paul said about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. This is why the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote chapter 11, the portion of that epistle that emphasizes the faith of one Old Testament hero after another. All were saved through their faith that God would raise up a perfect sacrifice one day in the future. Many who use the dispensational approach to interpret Scripture truly advocate that while genetically non-Hebrew people come to God through faith in Christ alone, Hebrews, that is, genetic Israelites, can obtain eternal life through good works under the Mosaic Law. For these ethnic Hebrews, Christ is not needed. Such dispensationalists are usually supporters of the modern Zionist movement and assume that the people popularly called Jews in our time are indeed true descendants of the ancient people of Judah. In this, they are mistaken. Indeed, if they were able to properly identify true genetic Israel in the earth today, they would have less motivation to create the second pathway to salvation of good works for the impostors, who today are called Jews. Circumcision and Baptism Dispensationalists make another mistake when they consider the right of entrance into the two prime covenants. In the Old Testament, children are an integral part of the Abrahamic covenant from the beginning of life. Old Testament saints were instructed to recognize and confirm this in a singular action, circumcision of male children on the eighth day after birth. This was a formal act of faith on the part of the parent. No one in Abraham's house was asked if he wished to undergo this procedure. It was an act of Abraham's will and was mandatory upon all males, old men, young boys, and infants. Looking backward in time, St Paul elaborated on the meaning of Abraham's circumcision from Romans chapter 4 verse 11. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet, being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. You can perceive in Paul's comments the vital headship that Abraham provided, in which children partook in the grace of God through the covenant act of their father or husband women also stood under the spiritual cover of their husband or father the new testament era initiated another rite that stood in precise parallel to circumcision without replacing the practical value of circumcision it nonetheless superseded it in covenantal design this is the rite of water baptism what is the connection between baptism and circumcision they both are signs of the ownership of Jesus Christ over the person who undergoes the right. From Colossians chapter 2, verses 10-12. And ye are complete in Him, Jesus Christ, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body, the sins of the flesh, by circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism, wherein ye are also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. There is no question that the circumcision made without hands and the circumcision of Christ is baptism. The point not to be missed is that baptism and circumcision are both outward marks of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Because circumcision pointed forward to Christ's sacrificial death, and baptism looks backward to the same, they are closely linked in Paul's mind, and almost, but not quite, interchangeable. They are two different covenantal signs designed to meet the same purpose. One is the providential sign and seal of faith God purposed for the Old Covenant, and the other is for the New Covenant. Circumcision looks forward in time to the coming Messiah, while baptism looks backward to the Messiah who already came. In the New Testament, there are at least three cases in which an entire household was baptized. Did these baptisms include infants or small children who lacked the maturity to grasp the meaning of what was occurring? It is probable that one or more did have young children, But it really does not matter, because the biblical use of the word household always includes everyone of all ages that stands under the authority of the head of that household. Throughout the ancient world, family solidarity was the normal mode of thinking and acting. This sense of family solidarity is why Paul could say that children in the home of a believer were holy before God despite the presence of an indifferent spouse. Look to first Corinthians chapter seven, verse fourteen. It is thus clear that when the Bible uses the word household, it includes young children and infants, if any are present. They don't need special mention. Therefore, when the Bible describes the baptism of Lydia and her household, in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, it's unreasonable to argue that this could not have included infants or young children. We can only assume, based on biblical precedent and usage of the word household, combined with the Hebrew concept of family solidarity, that if small children were present, they also would have been baptized. The same is true of the Philippian jailer who introduced Paul to all that were in his house, and was baptized, he and all his from Acts chapter 16, verses 32-33. through 33. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul states that he baptized also the household of Stephanus. What are we to assume about this household? Only what household always means in Scripture. If infants or small children were present, then they were included. The Law of God Another doctrinal error dispensationalists often promote is the idea that Old Testament law has no value and should be ignored. It is correct to state that no one is saved through obedience to the law or through any record of good deeds. Rather, all are saved by faith alone. However, it is a serious mistake to then assert that we are free to disregard God's instructions about how we should live. No one is saved by the law, but because we are saved, we wish to please God in obeying his commandments and doing the things he has asked of us. St. Paul warns that this is a spiritual balancing act. We obey God's law not to puff up ourselves in pride for our good works, but because obeying God's law gives us practical guidelines for life that will make our world a better place. And our lives more blessed. From Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. And from Romans chapter 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Our ongoing obligation to obey God's law, as revealed in the Old Testament, is a key element in a true covenantal approach to Scripture. Too many presume that while Old Testament law was pretty good, we now have something better, namely, the Holy Spirit. Yet God's law is not described as pretty good. Let's look at Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, And in keeping of them there is great reward. Note, the law of the Lord is perfect. The Hebrew word perfect means entirely true, Without blemish, complete. If God's law is described so, Why would Jesus Christ abolish it under the New Covenant? Indeed, our Savior Jesus Christ did not annul or abolish God's law, and the dispensationalists, who are quick to argue that he did, are so gravely mistaken. Some of the statutes in the Old Testament law are described in ways that emphasize their eternal validity. Consider these words given at the institution of the Passover celebration. From Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Does this sound like God intended for his people to celebrate the Passover for a period of time and then forget about it? Or does this seem to indicate that as long as Israelites exist, they should remember and honor this great day of deliverance. Plainly, the latter is correct. Another example of an Old Testament statue that's both eternal and permanent is the Sabbath day. From Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 14, and verses 16 and 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily, My Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. ever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It's impossible for an objective mind to read these words and not conclude that God's stated command was that as long as Israelites exist somewhere on the surface of the planet, they should honor and respect the Sabbath day. What else can throughout your generations and perpetual and forever mean? These are only two examples that emphasize the eternal validity of God's law. Many more could be cited. In his book, By This Standard, noted author Greg Bonson summarized how the New Testament writers viewed the law of the Old Testament. From a quote from page 90, In all of these ways, without elaborate introductions or explanations for departing from a general principle or perspective... The New Testament simply assumes the standing authority of every commandment of the Lord found in the Old Testament. Let us consider a few arguments from the New Testament that seem to teach that the law of God was brought to an end. Some who seek to annul the eternal nature of God's law, usually dispensationalists, cite Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 as evidence. This verse reads, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. There it is, the anti-law folks assert, a clear statement that God's law was nailed to the cross and abolished forever. We need not try to obey any of it. There's an immediate problem to this interpretation of Colossians 2 verse 14, though. Namely, It creates a direct contradiction to passages in the Old Testament that declare God's laws forever valid. So which is it? Are we supposed to obey God's law forever? Or are we supposed to stop now? Fortunately, this is easily resolved with a correct understanding of this passage. You see, the handwriting that was against us and was blotted out was not God's law, but the record of our sin. The list of sins we have broken is what was nailed to his cross. God's law remains, but now our transgressions are separated from us, as far as the east is from the west. From Psalms 103 verse 12. A second passage from the New Testament that dispensationalists frequently offer as justification for the annulment of God's law is Romans chapter 10 verse 4. For Christ... Is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth? Frequently, those who have a dispensational frame of reference assume that this verse means something along these lines. The death of Jesus ended the Old Testament law of God as an expected standard of conduct. God changed his ideas about how he ought to behave. So now we live by the Spirit and just automatically know what is right and wrong. Multiple problems exist with this interpretation of Romans 10 verse 4. In addition to creating a contradiction with Old Testament descriptions of the eternal nature of God's law, it's also very sloppy hermeneutics. Sometimes the word end does not mean cessation, as in, when the buzzer sounds, the football game will come to an end. But in this passage, Romans 10 verse 4, the word end means something different. It means goal or purpose, as in, the end of athletics among youth is to build physical strength and endurance. A casual investigation into the Greek word telos reveals this. Additionally, it makes better sense to interpret the word end as goal or purpose, because Romans 10 verse 4 then means that the goal or purpose of the law was to force us to look to Christ to obtain righteousness. Furthermore, the second problem with the notion that you will always be guided into automatically knowing what is right and wrong through the power of the Holy Spirit is reckless and dangerous. In fact, it has been proven disastrous in the modern charismatic movement. Every Christian must study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. From 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. We ought to be like the Buryans, who search the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. From Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Occasionally, dispensationalists argue that the only portions of the New Testament law that hold validity today are those segments that are reaffirmed in the New Testament. Everything else is null. That is, a short-sighted and false assumption that has the potential to introduce a host of doctrinal problems. Again, quoting from Bonson is fruitful. From page number 184, from Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Everything which God has said should be that by which man lives, from Matthew 4.4. 4. Not simply those things that God has spoken twice and in the right places, We must live by every scripture unless God explains otherwise. Was the law of blood sacrifice abolished? It is common for dispensationalists to argue that the law of blood sacrifice was done away with altogether when Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. This is not correct. It may seem like a fine point, but the following distinction is significant. Christ did not do away with the law of blood sacrifice. Rather, he made it permanently effective. The law of blood sacrifice is still very much in force. Indeed, it is the means by which you and I obtain our salvation. As Paul stated in Hebrews, "...the Old Testament sacrifices never did absolve us of our sin, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins." It was all merely a stopgap until a perfect sacrifice would come with a perfect priesthood. Jesus fulfilling both roles in his own person. We now look backward in time to that perfect sacrifice, while saints in the Old Testament look forward to it in faith. It's an interesting footnote, one that we do not have space to explore, that in the 1,000-year millennial kingdom, before the sin-free, eternal kingdom age, we shall offer again sacrifices for sin in a spacious, rebuilt temple with a purified priesthood performing these acts. They will be in obedience to the law and are commemorative of Jesus' sacrifice, not efficacious in and of themselves. See Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 19, verse 25, and verse 45, and Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7 and again in Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 16 through 18, Hosea, chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 20 through 21, and Malachi, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. One positive caveat regarding dispensationalists. Well, sort of positive. As this essay draws to a close, it is only fair and appropriate to observe one inclination of our dispensational brothers that is positive. Most dispensational theologians are adamant about reading and interpreting the Bible in a straightforward and plain manner, avoiding allegorical interpretations except where the text demands it. They tend toward literalism. This is quite refreshing, especially in one area of theology, eschatology. Reformed teachers frequently read difficult passages of prophecy and dismiss them as allegory or merely florid, metaphorical language. Consequently, reform thinkers effectively dismiss several chunks of Bible prophecy as not worthy of deep study or application. This weakness has the potential to make the dispensationalists shine when it comes to eschatology, but they always ruin their chance. How so? Dispensationalists often spend so much time and energy on Bible prophecy, probably the most obscure of all areas of theology, that they neglect other areas that are critical to spiritual health. Eschatology consumes them. They light upon small features of prophecy, sink their opinion deeply, and then heap scorn and ridicule upon all others who dare to disagree. They break fellowship and split churches, all because of a single disagreement about a narrow point of anticipated end-time events. The vast majority of books published in the areas of eschatology are out of the dispensational camp. An enormous variety of opinion exists, all of it forcefully fed with an abundance of overconfidence and only a paltry dose of humility. In Conclusion The eagerness with which dispensationalists attempt to drive a wedge between the Old and New Testaments and strain to find discontinuity is dangerous. While their motives are not in question, their premises are, for they draw conclusions that are mistaken. Three serious areas have been examined here. The dispensational view that two pathways exist to inherit eternal life, their insistence on avoiding covenantal baptism of infants and small children, and the disdain they hold towards God's law. Please guard your mind from these errors in theology and practice.